we'll see how this goes tonight. I'm uh, pretty excited about working through it again. So we're going to dig in a little deeper on the eternal aspect, the, the, the words that we had. So there's about two-thirds of this thing is actually going back through the, the word studies real quickly to make sure that just we can call those to mind that we looked at last week. Uh, Olam in the Old Testament and the Aeon uh, family of words in the New Testament. So we're going to look at, the, at this in particular tonight as it runs into translation. So I, I know I promised or thought or proclaimed or whatever you want to call it that this would be the, the, the second and the last one, which is also the last one in the series. Maybe that's true. And, and perhaps it's not. <laughs> it depends on how far we get. So that's okay. Because uh, there, there may, in fact, be... Okay, so earlier this week, I had a wonderful talk with some people about how you change your thoughts, how you change your mind. And uh, it's, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And you guys know that Joyland is a place where people are encouraged to think and hold their beliefs and change their beliefs if their beliefs need to be changed or they think they need to be changed. And so this is literally the last linchpin to what we've been talking about for a while. And so I've got a review here of what we've been talking about a while that's very, very quick. But I'm going to take the time to go through each line and... and these things add up to an enormous potential to identify in our lives areas where our beliefs work against paying attention, or they work against that knowledge of Him with us, even in the midst of a crappy week and a half, like Vicky was talking about. So the first one is, if you remember back when we first looked at the, the idea of being an image bearer in a new creation world, N.T. Wright is the one that kind of introduced us to it. And it doesn't matter who you look at if they're a real person not made by AI they are made in the image of God no matter how poorly that image gets reflected no matter how irritatingly they utilize the aspects of the gifts that come from being made in his image to, to abuse you or other people or just be a, be a, a, a dork no matter how insecure they are in trying, at the core, they are made in the image of God. They are image bearers, and Jesus restored that for humanity by the incarnation. So it's not something that you gain by virtue of uh, personal choice or hanging out with the right people or anything. Those are all great things to do. But it's what Jesus did in the incarnation and what he finalized on the cross the resurrection and the ascension. And it's what he is reigning and king over today that we need to understand is the source of image bearing. And that's how we see people's value the way God does. We don't just have to uh, put on rose-colored glasses. We don't have to ignore the trouble in the world or the evil in the world. We have to look through that and beyond that. Al, that was kind of what your testimony was earlier today. Al had an ascension earlier this week with his group, and they ended up getting inside the eye of the Father. A bunch of other stuff cool to get there. Uh, climbing in his beard, doing things like that. that was, I thought that was like super awesome. But nevertheless, they got inside his eye, and, and the unique perspective that Al shared that they saw, looking outside the Father's eye from the inside out, is... He saw both the, the thing that was needing to be done and the finished work of it at the same time. I thought that was super, super cool. That's what we get to do if we'll take image bearing as a serious reality and as a goal for how we look at people. Okay, so that's the first one. Now, that in itself is a big deal, but when it starts adding up with some of these things. Okay, now, the other is a Jesus... And, and that's not just any old Jesus. It's Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all. That carries, that's the authority he brought with him during the incarnation. He didn't come to earth to have a relationship. He already had a relationship as the one. And if you remember, we went through the, the Gospel of John, first chapter. Uh, everything was made by him. Nothing was made without him. He came unto his own, his own, not, you know, that kind of situation. He's the creator, sustainer of all. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Through whom God made the cosmos, the ages. Actually, that's ages, but it's 
the whole thing. So to, that we have the ability, the, the, the permission to expect a Jesus-centered eschatology. And that can look in a lot of different ways. And, and that's why we, we haven't really come to a lot of final conclusions on that yet. Some of us have, some haven't. But that's where we're working. Okay, the other thing, uh, the God who created is the exact same God who is going to ordain and empower the end of time, the age to come. That is something that when I first began to kind of doubt some common eschatological plans and, you know, uh, left behind movies and things like that, one of the things I realized that what wasn't setting right with me was God was sort of absent from the whole scenario. Jesus especially. He's just kind of waiting in the wings until he comes back and chops off a bunch of people's heads. But, but the scripture says that he is in heaven, he is ruling, he is reigning in this period of time until. And so we have that right. But Jesus isn't ancillary to God. He is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. And they are, you know, Spirit, light, fire, love, and love. And so the same God that created, the same God that manifests himself as the, the one who brought us into existence is the one who's going to manage our eschatological existence until that goal, if you remember in Second Corinthians, or in 1 Corinthians 15, until that goal where God becomes all in all. Now, whatever that means, and again, we're going to have plenty of time to talk about that in, in more depth later, but that's one. We also took a look at the severity of Gehenna versus the hopelessness of hell. And I actually really like that comparison because the accusation that comes if you start saying, well, I don't know if hell is the best way to talk about this or think about this is, oh, you just don't think, you know, you don't believe in hell. You don't believe people deserve God, blah, blah, blah. No. What if the hopelessness that we conceive of in our image of hell is less capable of bringing about righteousness, of less capable of balancing the scales, is less capable of setting things right than the severity of what Jesus was actually talking about when he talked about the fires of Gehenna. Okay, keep that in mind. I won't provoke you longer on that one. We looked at a real touchy topic that is, placing our hope in righteousness and transformation versus justice and vengeance. So just keep that in mind. Like I say, keep these things in the front of your mind as we talk about eternity. Okay? Punishment versus discipline in the consuming fire of persecution. Remember that God doesn't have to build a fire outside of himself to burn the things out of me that can't stay there. Oh, I, I meant purification. Thank you. Yes. Purification. Okay, anyway, think about that. The person and the purpose of light as judgment. This is one of my favorite things we've studied in the last two months. Jesus said, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And yes, men love darkness rather than light, and that's a bummer. And there's a lot that goes on, and some of it has to do with that previous point of fire to purification. But what is the purpose of light? It illuminates, right? And who is the person that is light? That would be God himself. Okay? And lastly is the possible options of a biblically honest afterlife. I won't make a lot more comment on that. I did fix my illustrations, so it's not etc. It's <laughs> eternal conscious torment versus the other. But a biblically honest, I will tell you, I believe that there are legitimate choices to make as we read the scripture and anticipate what it, what it teaches and what it portends as far as the age to come. In eternity. So that brings us to that, the eternity. So here's the words we were looking at. Olam is the primary word. It comes, 
from the word Alam, which is an Aramaic version. And uh, the word Alam is found 20 times in Ezra and Daniel, because those are the books that had a lot of Aramaic influence in them. And then Olam itself was used 438 times. And if you remember, and we're going to go through these fast. We might need to look at them again when we get into the area, but I don't think so, because we had a pretty good look at them yesterday. Uh, it means properly concealed or like a vanishing point, and that ties it in with some other things like Alam, which is considered, uh, you know, this thing, a, a hidden thing out of, on there. Time out of mind, past, present, or future. And then it's uh, translated eternally. Here's the numbers. Ever and forever is 272 times. Everlasting, 63 times. Of old or from old or olden times is 22. Perpetual is 22. Evermore is 15. It's, it's translated in the negative, never, 15 times. Time before or time past, six times ancient, five times world, is translated four times, which I have no idea why that's done in Hebrew. It, it drives me crazy that it's done in Greek. Uh, always, always, long, more, eternal. Interestingly enough, the word that, that sets the pattern for the words that are used to translate eternal in the New Testament in the Greek Septuagint is along clearly, and it's only translated one time as eternal in the King James and the Old Testament. And then continuance, and then it's translated as parts of a phrase. Now, there's another word that is a partner in this, not near the, the extensive use, but it's this word odd. And it properly means a terminus or a, a point of end. And it, it, adds, the, it adds the target point to a phrase about Olam. And so it's used 53 times, and most of the times it's used forever or something along those lines. But 16 of the 53, Ad is used in the phrase Olam Ad. And it's translated forever and ever. So the first one is translated forever in two words, or forever in one word. And odd is there. Now, the significance of this that I want you to keep in mind is that if Olam meant eternal, if that's literally what, it, what its primary meaning was, if forever meant eternal, you wouldn't need to modify it. But the forever and ever phrase, is, it comes from these two words working together. Okay? Does that make sense? All right, so that's something to think about. All right, in the New Testament, the root of all the New Testament words that deal with forever, eternity, eternal, and so on, all come from the word uh, a. And the first of those is adios, and it's only used twice in the New Testament, but it's very common in Greek literature. Uh, Plato, Socrates, a bunch of different stuff. Uh, even even the guys that wrote in Greek, like um, Josephus and stuff like that. Uh, so, adios is used twice, and it's translated eternal in Romans one twenty and everlasting in Jude 6. And literally, uh, this is the strangest word. Uh, Strong's definition says ever during. They should have just gone ahead and said ever, everlasting or whatever the case. But it means, it, it means it's during. The reason is because the whole age thing is a, is, is a time that is defining a thing. And so this is enduring the age type, type of situation. But anyway, adios is the word that most accurately, truly means everlasting. And uh, there are a lot of places where it's used in, in Greek literature where it clearly means forever, never, 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 never. And it, it means eternal. It's attached to certain things. Um, there is, is uh, another word that's used a lot and gets translated eternal a lot in common New Testament. And that we're going to look at that in a minute, that aeonios. And in Greek literature, aeonios never means eternal. If it's talking about what we think of as eternal, everlasting, it'll be this word, aeonios. But this one only gets used twice in the New Testament. The next one is sort of the, the, the center part of that, and it's aeon. And properly, that means an age. And then last week, if you were here, you remember I kind of uh, ragged on, on translators because 
It said, proper, you know, this is Strong's definition. Properly, an age. By extension, perpetuity. You can see that, you know. By implication, the world. And the beef I have with that, if you remember, is there is a perfectly good word in Greek that literally means the world. And that is cosmos. And so there's no real legitimate reason to translate this cosmos. And in every situation where it says it, for instance, in Hebrews chapter uh, 1, verse 2, uh, you know, that in, in chapter 1 is, is, in times past in various ways, God spoke to prophets and men of old, but in these last days he's spoken to us in Son, through whom he made the ages. But it, for some reason, gets translated world. Honestly, if the writer of Hebrews had wanted to use world, he probably would have used the word cosmos. But it doesn't, it's, it makes sense to say that God used Jesus to make the ages, right? As much as it does the world's. Okay, so anyway, that's that. Um, then the last one is the one that is most often in the New Testament translated eternal or eternally. And that is uh, aeonios. And sometimes, like olam and ad, aeonios and aeon is put together and usually that gets translated uh, either forever and ever or eternally and forever. Okay? But what it means is perpetual. Uh, it's used 71 times. It's translated as everlasting 25, eternal 14, 14, 41, the world began. And I don't really understand why in King James or in most translations, even like New American Standard and stuff like that, it's not translated age. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. So tonight we're going to look at, at how may we and why do we translate these words as we do? And when I say how may, how may we, this is what I mean. I'm hoping to make a case to give you permission to translate these words in a way um, that is just not rigidly locked in to the word eternal or eternity. Okay? Now, you don't have to do that, but I'm trying to give you permission to do that. Sure. Yes. In the Old Testament, when it was Alam and Ad combined, mm-hmm. is it feasible to translate that to be forever towards a target? Uh, as long as you envision, you'd probably be pretty accurate toward the Hebrew. If you envision that target to be a, a spot on the horizon or an infinite spot out there in time. Could the target be God? Uh or is that stretching things? That's much? probably stretching things a little okay. bit. The way it's used, yeah. It, not, not entirely, but, but yeah, a little bit. Uh, it's okay to think that way. I think that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it would probably, there would probably be, be something, olam, and then, then the words with some name of God, if they were trying to get to that point. All right. So here they are again. I don't think we need to go through those again. So here are some scriptures. We looked at these last week. I'm going to go through them quick because we're going to get into some other stuff. <laughs> then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. This is the first use of Olam in the Old Testament. It's very familiar. Uh, knowing good and evil, now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. All right? Now, I want you to think about the contrast that's presented in Genesis Verse six, or chapter 6, verse 3. God says, then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Both those words forever, both the one in Genesis 3.22 and the one in Genesis 6.2, 3, 6.3, are olam. Now, you can see how the second one also could mean the, the projection into forever, because it's a negation. God says, I'm not going to strive my spirit with him forever. But the point of the, the first is that that didn't catch God by surprise. That forever in Genesis, the early one there, Genesis 3.22, didn't mean for all eternity. It meant a long time. And that long time was nullified when God saw what went on with the Nephilim and all this kind of stuff and backed away. Okay? So it, it, it just wouldn't be 
honestly accurate in the context and the tension between those two verses to say eternal. Okay, 2 Chronicles 6.2. This was at Solomon's dedication of the temple. I have built you a lofty house and a place for your dwelling forever. Now, I don't have a doubt that Solomon meant forever. But God didn't mean forever. Because it was always, I'm sure, Solomon's intention. And so that's probably why he used the word. But God's intention was that Yeshua should be the temple. And then that in Yeshua, we should be the temple. And that eventually they would abide in the new Jerusalem and still in us. And Yeshua would still be the light in the center of the thing. So you see what I'm saying? Even though Solomon spoke that, it doesn't mean he was lying. It doesn't even mean he was ignorant. It means he might have intended it, but it didn't actually carry the force of eternity. Make sense? Okay. Isaiah 64, 4. From, for from days of old, that's, that phrase is the word olam in this, in this verse. They have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts on behalf of the ones who wait for him. And there's probably dozens of these kind of translations. And so just, just allow yourself to realize simply that the days of old simply cannot mean eternity. <laughs> it means something that's stopped, something that's passed. It doesn't go on forever. That's why this word's used to refer- reference it. Make sense? All right. And all I'm trying to do is just show that you're not creating any monstrous heresy or anything by realizing that, that Olam, the pattern for Aeon, Aeonios, and all that, it doesn't necessarily mean eternity. And then lastly, this is the one that uh, to me seals the deal a lot. Uh, Leviticus 25, 26. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you. That's talking about slaves of of, uh, non-Jewish people, foreigners. To receive as a possession, you can use them as permanent slaves. As permanent is the word olam. Now that would make no sense as eternal slaves. At least I don't think so. And I'm seriously hoping that when we go to eternity and the age to come, there's not slavery going on that carried over from previous generations, even if it's just for the Jews, okay? Uh, But in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, you shall not rule with severity over one another. And in this case, the maximum meaning, I think, if you're going to be honest about what it's talking about, the maximum meaning that could be applied to this phrase and the word olam would be the life of that servant, the life of that slave, okay? All right, so each of these do represent a time frame, and it's a time frame that identifies something. That's what Olam represents. It's like, it's like if, if a time frame was a thing, it defines the thing. Or the thing defines its duration, like the life of a slave. Okay? All right, this is the other one we looked at already, but I want to reinforce it. This is the shortest... Olam in the Bible that I've been able to find. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again forward to your holy temple. Water compasses me uh, to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountain. The earth with its bars was around me forever. And that forever was a three-day long Olam. But you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and the prayers came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay you. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it barfed Jonah up on the beach. So that Olam, there's a lot going on there, right? But that Olam took three days, beginning to end. Yeah, yeah. All right, so Olam can project the sense that we use when we use the word eternal. It can. 
depending on what it modifies, but it does not necessarily. Like there's a number of times that Olam talks about the goodness of God or talks about uh, the, the rule of the Lord or the throne of God or something along those lines. There's nothing wrong with assuming that that's... But God is the one that defines how long the Olam is in that case, not Olam how long God is. God's not waiting around to see how long he's going to be able to be there and whether Olam means eternity. He's the one that pushes eternity into that word. Okay? Uh, so to clearly carry the idea of everlasting, that's why I brought up the idea about odd. Because odd in there seals the deal that, that they're trying to talk about forever and ever. And some of the words about forever and ever are, um, oh, there's one in Psalm, uh, O Lord, you're a king forever and ever. Olam, odd. And interestingly enough, almost all the uses of that, almost all the 16 times that's used, those words are in that order, olam ad. But there's a two or three where it talks about the statutes of the Lord, and for some reason they always reverse it, that it's ad olam. So I don't really know why, but it's interesting. Okay, makes sense? Okay, now to the New Testament. We'll, we'll, you see this, we've gone through all this, I don't think there's a problem. One thing I want you to note is that uh, uh, several translations begin to touch on the concept of age beyond King James. Young's literal never uses the word eternal in, that I know of. Maybe it does in one place. Um, but uh, like David Bentley Hartz, which we're going to look at some of his, they get away from that eternal and they talk like age something. And it's a little awkward sometimes, but we're going to look at it next. So this is one scripture, though, where both Olam, I mean, both Aeonios and Aeon are used. And you can see really clearly here, we looked at this last week, so I appreciate you having patience. Let me look at it again. But you can see how the thing that is being talked about as Aeonia is what defines how long it is. Okay? So the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Obviously, Paul's writing this. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept hidden for long ages past. Long ages, for long ages, is the word olam. Past is, I think, the word chronos. Yeah, chronos. So the time part is used, the word chronos, but long ages past is aeonios. Okay? but is now manifest by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God. Well, aeonios, when it's applied to the nature of God, of course can be eternal, right? But God is the one that makes it eternal. Long ages past doesn't make it eternal. Time doesn't even make it eternal, like it is aeonios chronos. But theos aeonios does. Theos, okay, has been made uh, known to the nations forever, uh, the nations leading to obedience and faith, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory forever. That's aeon. So this is one verse, or one well, chunk of verses, in which you can see the, the difference, and you can see how the thing that it's attached to, that a, the aeonios is attached to, or aeonian, gives length and breadth to the period of time it's talking about. That Okay, so long ages past are, are certainly not, we looked at that in Olam, right? They're not eternal. Otherwise, there would be no way to determine that they were past. They're not still going on. They're referencing something that had a beginning and an end in the past. It's not eternal, okay? Long ages past, but God is. And so the conclusion illustrates that Aeonius can mean eternal, but it does not automatically mean it. It depends on the context of what it's going through. My oil just came loose in my pocket. I wonder what that'll do my pants. <laughs> okay. Uh, in the same way that Olam was having that same effect. All right. So I promise you, I'm not just standing here trying to talk you out of believing in eternity. <laughs> That's not the point. These words don't automatically mean that. They mean something more precise than that, something less than just a, a sweeping thing of 
of Aeonia. Okay? Where are we going from here? Let me, let me read this. I, I didn't know if I was going to do this or not, but I think I want to. So David Bentley Hart has an appendix in his New Testament about this. And I'm going to read just a little bit of it to you. So this is uh, uh, why he, it's called the regular glossary uh, in words that he translated certain ways. So the first word is aeonios, which is the one we've been considering, which is the most traditional translation, which most traditional translations render as eternal or everlasting, except in the many instances where the reading would be nonsensical, like the one we just looked at in Romans. And I have discovered that there are many Christians whose sometime furious objection to any other rendering revolve around the single verse, which is Matthew 25, 46. And that's the one that uh, compares eternal life to eternal punishment. And we're going to look at it a little bit, and that's why I think we might need a third session on this, because we're going to have to dig into that if you want to dig into the possible choice of what you're going to believe about what that says. So anyway, um, uh, he says, uh, okay, and I have uh, discovered that there are many Christians who sometimes furious objections to any other rendering resolve around a single verse, Matthew 25, 46. And then this is his opinion. After all, as translator, in the original Greek of the New Testament, there really are only three verses that seem to threaten eternal punishment for the wicked, though in fact none of them actually do. The many who are doctrinally and mostly committed to the idea of eternal torment for the unelect would feel gravely bereaved if the delicious clarity of the seeming one explicit verse were allowed to be obscured by a haze of lexical indeterminacy. <laughs> okay, he's funny. Uh, to these, I can say only that if you really wish to believe in everlasting torment and the reprobate, you're perfectly free to do so. Um, he goes on and he says, but first there is a, a genuine ambiguity in the term in Greek that is impossible to render directly in an English equivalent. Aeonios is an adjective drawn from the substantive aeon, which can sometimes mean a period of endless duration, but which more properly throughout the whole of ancient and late antique Greek literature means an age or a long period of time of indeterminate duration, or even just a substantive interval. Its proper equivalent in Latin would be aveum. At times it can refer to a historical epoch, uh, to a time long past or far in the future, or I would add like the Bronze Age or something along that way, you know, where there's a defining beginning. Uh, it, or it could be something as shadowy and fleeting as the lifespan of a single person. In Homer and in the Attic Dramatist, this is its typical meaning. Or even a considerably shorter period of time, let's say a year. It can also, and as frequently does in the New Testament, refers to a particular universal dispensation, either the present world or the world to come, or the age to come. So anyway, there's a bunch more in here, uh, but I, I just, I, you'll understand why in a second, because we're going to look at a couple of his translations. Okay? But again, this is not just trying to drive, us, drive the bus off the rails. There's really a problem with the way it's translated in a lot of places. All right, so here goes. Uh, we looked at the one, Genesis 3.22. That's the one we first looked at, remember? But now we're going to look at it in Young's Literal, who rarely, if ever, translates Olam or the other. So here's some Old Testaments. And Jehovah God saith, Lo, the man was as one of us, as to the knowledge of good and evil. And now lest he send forth his hand, and have taken also of the tree of life, and eaten and lived to the age. Now, as awkward as the language is, it still makes perfect sense, right? It doesn't have to say live eternally or live forever. Live to the age. Okay? The next one, Isaiah 59, 21. And I, this is my covenant with them, says Jehovah. My spirit that is on thee and my words that I have put in your mouth depart not from your mouth or from the mouth of thy seed. And from the mouth of thy seed's seed, says Jehovah, from henceforth unto the age. Again, it's pointing to that destination out there. It's pointing to a, long, a thing out in the front, way out, a time period. And, it, and the word unto the age is perfectly, makes perfect sense in that, that translation. 
Now here's one, this is an important one because we're going to come back to it before we get done tonight. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Uh, Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, in Young's Literal. And the multitude of those sleeping in the dust of the ground do awake, some to life age during, and some to reproaches, to abhorrence age during. And those teaching do shine as the brightness of the expanse, and those justifying the multitude as the stars to the age and forever. And there's an example of Olam Ad to the age forever. Now, again, if you're not used to reading Young's Literal, uh, he spent no energy trying to make it read smoothly. <laughs> he just tried to hammer out as literal a translation as he could. But you can see this introduction. And age during is the phrase that he used most to talk about Olam and to talk about almost exclusively Aeonios. And what he's trying to emphasize in that, according to his own notes, is we're talking about an age and we're talking about the time spent in that age. We're talking about an age and the things that happen during that age. So in, in his commitment to literal word pictures, age during, with a hyphen, is what he came up with. David Bentley Hart approaches it a little bit differently in his New Testament. He, he uses the phrase that's a little more common in our language, in the age, or of the age, or into the age. But it's saying the same thing. It's acknowledging that there's a time component to these words, olam and aeonios, but that it isn't automatically a forever time component. There are things that happen within the age, or that get you to the age. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's... So this is kind of important. We'll come back to this verse in just a minute. All right. So now into some New Testament. Here's Young's literal 17, 1 through 3. A very, very famous and very, very important eternal life passage, right? From, from Jesus. These things spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son may also glorify thee. According as thou didst give him authority over all flesh, all that thou hast given him, he may give to them life age during. In the Greek word for life, there is zoe. I just want you to make note of that. Because that verse we looked at in Daniel, when it talks about life age during, it's zoe. It's the same word in the Septuagint. It's obviously a different word in, in Hebrew. But, uh, okay, and this is the life age during that they may know thee, the only true God, and him who doubted sin, Jesus Christ. So this is Jesus defining what we normally call eternal life. And it is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Jesus that provides life unto the age, in the age. Age during is his phrase. Okay? David Billing Hart translates it this way. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to the sky said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son might glorify you, just as you gave him power over all flesh, so that you have given everything to him, that he might give them life in the age. And this is life in the age, that they may know you, the sole true God, and him who you sent, Jesus the Anointed. So now, I, 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 obviously, that's easier to read. It's easier to understand. I like it. Age during is kind of an awkward phrase. But you can see how both of them capture the same thought that there is an age that defines something, and then there is stuff going on in that age. There is life going on in that age. And there's a, there's a duration of that. Now, it could very well mean that that life goes on forever. But there's some interesting things that we need to look at in some detail, such as, why does the tree of life in the New Jerusalem produce fruit every month? And why are the leaves necessary for the healing of nations if eternal life is a once-for-all deal? I don't know, but that's just a question you can think about and wish that you had somebody teaching that knew the answer. <laughs> Here's another one. John, very, very significant verse, very famous verse, same thing. John 3, 14 through 16. Young's literal says, And as Moses lift, did lift up the serpent in the wilderness, so it behoveth the Son of Man to be lifted up 
that everyone who is believing in him may not perish, but may have life age during. For God did so love the world that his son, the only begotten he gave, that everyone who is believing in him may not perish, but may have life age during. And I know it sounds awkward because we're used to hearing may have eternal life. But it's, you see what I'm saying? There's a consistency here, trying, these guys trying to nail down the thing. Now, David Bellinghart changes it a little bit, but does the same thing and keeps the same commitment. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so it is necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up, that everyone having faith in him might have the life of the age. So do you see how the nature of the life is pulling from the age to be defined? And the the life of the age isn't automatically Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, eternal, finished, fixed, done. Doesn't mean it's not, but it means that, that it takes something else to make that happen. And the same thing down here, but have everlasting life. All right, now I want to look for one more verse for you. I know. Oh, sorry. Uh, for God so loved the cosmos to give his son the only one that everyone having faith in him might not perish, but have the life of the age. It's the same kind of situation. But let me do this one for you. Now, this is uh, N.T. Wright's translation. And just to show you that, it, that uh, if you don't like David Bentley Hart because he's like super arrogant and uh, he's an orthodox guy, I understand it because he's very irritating. Uh, but he's also very smart and he has a lot of commitment to integrity in, in his translation. But let me read this one. So uh, 3.14, where are we at? 3.14. This is N.T. Wright translation. So just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may share in the life of God's new age. This, you see, is how much God loves the world, enough to give his only special son so that everyone who believes in him should not be lost, but should share in the life of God's new age. So do you see the consistency there? And it, it, Okay, so that's N.T. Wright. He's not arrogant. He is struggling with something, though, and I'll show you that in just a minute. So, so can you see with these two examples how age translates and it makes as much sense in keeping with the aeon root, more sense really, than it does a root that doesn't apply to the, I mean, a, a meaning that doesn't apply to the root of the word. Okay? All right. So now here's, here's the killer verse that so much of this is built around. And it, there are, you know, the, virtually the whole doctrine of eternal conscious torment hinges on this. And it started hinging on it when Augustine interpreted this verse. And I'll explain how in just a second. But, uh, Young's literal says, Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily, I say unto you, Inasmuch as you did it not to one of these, the least you did it not to me. And these shall go away to punishment, age during, but the righteous to life, age during, sticking with his pattern. Now, if you were to read this in New American Standard, these shall go away to punishment, uh, to eternal punishment, and these to eternal life, is how it's translated. And so that... That parallelism between eternal punishment, or literally Aeonian Colossus and Aeonian Zoe, is what Augustine introduced the concept of eternal conscious torment to the Western Church. And he said, if the life is eternal, the punishment has to be eternal too. That's where it came from. Now, it makes sense in a way, and he also was not much of a Greek guy, which that sounds totally stupid for me to say, because I don't know anything that I don't read out of my lexicon. But it's true, and it's a fact about him. He, he did not speak Greek as a native language. And there are, if I were to read a little bit more in here, there are dozens of early church fathers who never used aeonium to mean eternal. If they wanted to mean eternal, they would use the word adios. And it's just, it's just the truth. It's how it works. All right, David Bentley Hart says it this way. Then he will answer them saying, Amen, I tell you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the one of the least of these my brothers, neither did you do it to me. 
And these will go to the chastening. And he uses chastening for the word colossus because colossus is not the word for punishment that means retributive punishment. It is the word that means chasing. It's not the same word that's used for discipline like in Romans 12, uh, but it, it, is, it is a word that is never in Greek literature used for punishment. It's always used for the idea of rehabilitation, rehabilitative chastening or something like that. doesn't mean there's not violence associated with it or prison associated with it, but it's always done with rehabilitation in the context. Uh, Timeu is the other word. That's the word Paul used about himself where he didn't care about rehabilitating followers of the way. He just wanted to kill them and lock them in prison. And that's the only place it's used when Paul tells his story about the punishment he was meeting out to Christians. He used the word Timaeo. These This word means chastening. So that's what David Bentley... Uh, okay, now, and so here's the parallel. And these will go to the chastening of that age, but the just to the life of that age. Now, do you see how if you let Aeonios mean the age or the movement into the age, the duration of that age, then there's freedom in that thought for things to be different. Like, for instance, we're looking for the celebration of the marriage feast of the Lamb. Is that an eternal celebration? I don't know. It could be an inaugural celebration. Is it going to be in that age, the age to come? Yes, it is. But it doesn't automatically mean that there's not going to be anything else going on forever and ever and ever except the marriage feast of the Lamb. I don't know. But you see how if you, if you don't import into the word, aeonios, the, the fixed concept that we've grown up with about eternal, then you have the freedom for things to, different things to happen in there. And then that goes back to where Jesus is talking about being delivered over to the tormentors until you pay the last farthing. You can't use the word until in the middle of a sentence about eternity <laughs> because it doesn't make any sense. But if you're delivered over to the tormentors to pay the last farthing, in the age to come, it just would mean that there was an aeon in that aeonios in which you paid the last farthing. So that's why we've got to take this somewhat seriously and look at it. Now, this is a sad thing for me to share with you. Uh, um, only because I feel like I, I don't want to, I really love this guy. But let me read Matthew, um, let me read these verses, 45 and 46, from, and understand it's exactly the same words. Exactly the same words, especially the Aeonium Zoe. So here's N.T. Wright. Then he will answer them, I'm telling you the truth. When you didn't do it for one of the least significant of my brothers and sisters here, you didn't do it for me. And they will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous will go into everlasting life. Now, I would absolutely love the opportunity, and I would do so with the deepest possible respect in my heart. But I would say, Brother Tom, why did you translate chapter 3 out of John into the age, uh, the, 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 the new age of God, when it's the exact same two, life of the new age of God, the same two words. Why did you translate that? If not, because you were embracing the theological lens before you did the translating. There's no real reason not to. And so... If we want to do that, we just need to be honest and say it's because we believe this theology of eternal conscious torment and we believe that it must be that if life is that. But that's, that's a very interesting thing. So anyway, so you can see that when translated as of the age or whatever, it places it in there, but it, but it doesn't equal an eternal duration. Okay? And we're about done here. All right, back to this passage in Daniel. It's the last comparison we're going to make tonight, and it's the reason why we need to talk about this one more week. Uh, so in Young's literal, the multitude of those sleeping in the dust. This was Michael, the, uh, the angel Michael coming and giving a prophecy to Daniel. Okay, uh, And the multitude of those sleeping in the dust and the ground awake, some to life, age during, and some to reproaches, abhorrence, age during. 
It's interesting. Those two words, reproaches and abhorrence, mean shame in Hebrew and uh, shame and embarrassment or something along those lines. So, age stirring. And uh, those teachings do shine. Those t- teaching do shine. Uh, people, in other words, people revealing the truth, do shine in the brightness of the expanse and justify the multitude as the stars of the age, and forever. Okay. Now Matthew, this in in uh, David Bentley Hart's New Testament we just looked at, it's the chastening, Colossus of that age, and the life of that age. And then down here, this verse in John 15, as opposed to the eternal punishment and eternal life. Now, John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, David Bentley Hart reads this way. Do not be amazed at this, for the hour is coming in which all those, this is Jesus speaking, all those in the tomb will hear his voice, and those who have done good things will come forth into resurrection life, and those who have done evil into a resurrection of judgment. Resurrection life. Now, he didn't use the word age here. Resurrection is a different word. But resurrection life, resurrection punishment. That is kind of what Daniel's prophecy that Michael gave him was saying. Some are going to rise to life. Some are going to rise to judgment. Okay? Just think about it. Just think about it. We're going to dig into it a little more deeply. There's about four or five other parallels all of which don't necessarily insist or imply that those two things run in parallel. In other words, they disagree with what Augustine said, and I'll share some other stuff from some of the other church fathers as well. Guys, let me... uh, All we have to do, there's nothing we have to be afraid of that the Scripture teaches. Just... Give it time. Just give it time. Be open. Uh, everybody here wants to believe the truth, right? It's okay. So does everybody that's done all that other stuff. So did so did uh, Augustine. I'm certain of it. Um, so there's nothing in there we need to be afraid of, and there's nothing in there you have to make a snap judgment on, and there's nothing in there that you have. There's nothing in your theology you have to change if you don't want to. 